For those of you who don't know me, I've been a Grace Pointer for about six years. I'm a lawyer by trade, a corporate lawyer, actually. Uh, I'm not a trained pastor or theologian. I've never spoken to a church like this before. Those of you who've been with us a while do remember that I would occasionally get up and do the offering and beg for money and do that kind of thing. This is a little different than that. Um, I think Stan and Elka asked me to do this because I've been involved with Open Table Nashville for about the last three or four years, and I'm not in any way an expert in the issues of people experiencing homelessness or people experiencing extreme poverty at all, not in the least bit. Um, But I think I am somebody whose life has been changed, thankfully, in, in a very big way, in a way that was very needed by my experience in working with people who have experienced homelessness. And my hope for the remarks that I'm going to make before Roy and Steve get up and talk about uh, what this church is going to try to do in partnering with Room in the Inn and Open Table Nashville and the practical way that we can get involved is to tell you a little bit about how I have experienced or how I frame within my Christian life the church's role and my role as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, with people experiencing homelessness and people in extreme poverty, and how we even think about, as Americans, what extreme poverty is. Um, you know, as an aside, the weirdest thing about this, getting up here and doing this, is I didn't know what to wear. Like, when I got ready today, I don't have any black V-necks. So I thought... <laughs> What? Like, I didn't know. Like, I, I'm, I am most, I wear a suit to work every day, and I thought maybe if I wear a suit, and I grew up Southern Baptist, I don't know if we, I know we've got Southern Baptists here. We, we dressed up. So this was a little, this is new for me. And I thank you for being here. Thankfully, George is blowing Tennessee out right now, so maybe you got bored with a game and came here. Um, so Stan and Elka asked me to deliver what is essentially a sermon and a message on this issue. And with the humility of somebody who's not trained in this, but with hopefully the sincerity of someone who way too late in life has discovered this. I'd like to present a couple stories from the book of Mark that I think frame for us a way for us to think about this issue for our church and for ourselves and our own humanity. And there are two, there are two stories out of Mark that are two stories you've heard before and they address poverty square on, and I think they're two of the most misused, widely interpreted stories out of the New Testament. And I'd like to offer a way that I, in my new experiences in life, and a lot of people who have worked in these areas may echo, that I kind of see them now. And I'll tell you the way that I look at these stories are a lot as a lawyer looks at a story, and that is we break it down and we look for context, we look for contextual clues. I'm not going to tell you what all the Greek, Greek words meant, but... I'd like to share these stories with you and share you the the lens through which maybe we can view them and see what Jesus was really talking about when he was talking about poverty. And the first one is Mark 10, 17 through 25. And if you've attended church at all in your life, you've seen this one. And this, this story is usually used when we're raising money. This is in the book of Mark. And to frame it, Jesus has just been just done the story where he has the children on his lap and it says unless you're like a little child and, and, and you take on the manner of a child you will never see or enter the kingdom of heaven so he's finished that speech story and the story starts and he says 
As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked, and he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Who's heard this one before? I mean, we've talked about this one a hundred times. I'd like to start at the beginning of this story and break it down a little bit and maybe offer some observations that I've noted as somebody who didn't have a Christian faith at all for over a decade and has returned to this text that really stood out to me once some of the things I was taught growing up fell away. And the first is at the very beginning, as he was setting out on a journey. So the context here is not, Jesus is not sitting in the synagogue, he's not sitting in a temple. Jesus has actually done teaching in this area, and he's about to leave town. And I imagine that as Jesus is leaving town, the same crowd of people that always surrounds Jesus is probably surrounding him. And who are those people? The poor, the sick, the needy, people with immediate and incredible desperate need. Crowded around him like they always were, like we know in every other story, and Jesus is setting on a journey and, and Matthew and Luke, or Matthew and John, I think, tell us that this is the rich young ruler. But Mark, the first gospel, just says this is a man. We know later it's a rich man. A man ran up and knelt before him. So what's the first thing that this man has done? He's jumped to the front of the line. Does that make him a bad person? No. He's accustomed to being at the front of the line. He runs up to the front of the line and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the parlance of that time, what he's saying is, good teacher, what do I need to do to get to heaven? In other words, what do I need to do to make sure that life is as good as it is right now when I die? There's a pretty significant lack of observation happening right now, isn't it? To walk past a great many people who are around Jesus hoping to address an immediate need, and this man walks all the way past them and he says, how do I know that I'm taken care of when I die? Now, I don't say that in any kind of judgment for this man at all because I identify with that man. In this story, that's who I see myself as oftentimes. And I'll submit also that this man lacked the capacity to see the people around him. This is not he looked past a sick person and he thought, I don't care about you. I submit to you that he didn't even see him at all. You know, Stan talks a lot about the story in Matthew when Jesus describes, the only time Jesus describes the final judgment, and people say, when did we see you sick and tired and hungry? And Jesus said, whenever you did this for the least of these, you did it for me. And when you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. The key word there for me has always been, when did we see you? And the answer is, you didn't. Let's move on in the story, because I think this makes more sense. I'm going to move past, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. There's a whole lot there. But the next part, you know the commandments. This is interesting. Jesus says, hey, you know the commandments, and he names six 
commandments. Interestingly, one of those is not even a commandment. Thou shalt not defraud is not a commandment. It's said in other parts of the Torah, but it's not a commandment. But he names five commandments that are behavior commandments. And for someone of, of this man's stature, these aren't softballs, but these aren't the hard ones for this man. Interestingly, we all know that another time Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus didn't mention any of these. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then the second one is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think it's really interesting that Jesus looked at this man and said, you know the commandments. That's called the Shema. And Jesus doesn't mention the Shema. Now, I'll tell you, I don't think that's an accident. I think Jesus has watched this man walking up to him doing this, and he knows exactly who he's dealing with. And we know later Jesus loves this man and has compassion for him. He doesn't judge him. He watches this man walk up to him, and he says, hey, you know the commandments, don't you? You've got a great education. I can tell by the cut of your cloth, by the cut of your jib, the way you handle yourself. You know these commandments. And he recites them and says, yes, I've held these commandments from my youth. And Jesus goes, and I love that it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him because we have another clue there. One thing that can happen, one thing that happened to me is I began to become involved with issues with people experiencing homelessness is there's, once you begin to become involved, man, there's a cut of self-righteousness that happens. For those of you who've begun or have been involved in social action and social justice, when you first begin to be involved, don't you feel that temptation of self-righteousness? I'm involved now, why aren't you? We're in this group now, why aren't you? And we know very clearly that's not how Jesus sees this. He doesn't look at this man of every privilege imaginable in this culture and say, how dare you? He looks at him and he loves him because he sees the incredible thing that's missing. And this is where now we're getting to the part of this story where a lot of us have wrestled with, is this a story that means in order to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus, we've got to sell everything we have? give it to the poor? Or does this mean we only have to sell everything we have if we love our money, but if we don't love our money, we get to keep it? Well, that's an irony. Jesus says, I just, Jesus is thinking, I think, consider this. Jesus just watched this rich young man run all the way to the front of the line, past all of these people in deep immediate need, and ask about what happens to himself when he dies. He just confirmed that the man has read the Torah his whole life and missed the entire deal. And the man confirmed that he did. And Jesus says, hey, you lack one thing. Now, this is curious. Jesus says, you lack one thing. He said, go sell everything you own, give it to the poor so you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Well, that's three things. So what is it here that Jesus is saying, or at least the way I've read it now, is Jesus saying that the secret to getting to heaven is selling everything you own? Is Jesus saying that the secret to getting to heaven is sell everything you own and give it to the poor? Because if it's just that, then the then follow me is superfluous. And as a lawyer, we don't like superfluous language. You guys have signed contracts, right? We have like 28 pages. So because we don't like superfluous language, because I don't like superfluous language, I have to read more into it and figure out, now what is it that's being said here? 
you lack one thing. Is it just following Jesus? Jesus is about to go on a journey. Is it, hey man, just come with me? Because if it's just that, that selling everything you own and giving it to the poor doesn't matter. Here's the suggestion I'll make to you for this story before we move to the next one. I don't think any of these things are what Jesus is talking about here. I think what Jesus is saying to him is, you lack one thing, young man. And I can tell you that I think this is what Jesus is saying because I think Jesus has said it to me. You lack one thing. And before you can even figure out what that is, I need you to sell everything you own. I need you to give it to the poor. You don't even know who they are. And I need you to follow me because I'm about to go on a journey. And it's possible that along this journey, if you'll get to know these people around me, if you'll get to see and do the things that I do, you'll figure out what it is that you lack. You'll figure out that later in the story, when I say the greatest commandment is to love God and the next one is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself, you'll go, oh my goodness gracious. Now I'm going to elaborate on two points that are germane to this congregation and to this ministry in a second. But I want to go to the second story, talk about it, and bring it back. So the second story is in Mark 14. Verses 3 through 9. This is a story that has been, I think, uh, who am I to say? I I think this story may have been misused. Verse 3, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard came, came, excuse me, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you. And you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. So what's the context of this story? This story, just, we've heard it in different ways. I think in John, this is Lazarus' house. It's not Simon's house. The, The woman turns out to be Mary in John's version of the story. But in Mark's gospel, which was the first gospel written, it's a woman. We don't know who she is. It's Simon's house. Mark has this story happening almost immediately before Jesus is arrested. And Jesus is there at dinner, and this woman brings to him this jar of ointment. 300 denarii is about an annual, is about a year's wages for a common day laborer. So for the, the people that Jesus may have been associating with, this is a fortune. This is probably an absolute fortune for her and it's probably not too much to assume that this represents almost all that she has the other thing that I think is interesting or one of the other things that I think is interesting well let me back up on this story how many times have you guys heard the phrase the poor you will always have with you heard that let me tell you one of the ways in which I've heard it that 
kind of gave me one of those twitches. You get one of those sometimes, like your eye does that thing when you hear it. Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, and I guess he's still the secretary of energy. I don't know. Um, <laughs> he ran for president a couple of times. Um, governor Perry, former Governor Perry, was interviewed by Salon Magazine. And one of the questions in his interview, he was talking about his Christian faith and how his Christian faith influenced his governorship in ideas about marriage, in ideas about abortion, and how that influenced. And the interviewer asked him, well, what about the war on poverty? How, are, how, how do you see yourself or the role of government in addressing the issue of poverty in the state of Texas? And he said, you know, that just hasn't been a point of emphasis for me. Even Jesus said, you know, the poor you will always have with you. Now, some of us can go, yeah, and some of us may be saying, oh, my goodness gracious. But at some point in most of our lives, if we were raised in the church or if we were raised around church people, we've probably heard something like that. This idea that poverty is an inevitable thing. And that Jesus is saying, or maybe the story is Jesus saying, look, you guys keep taking care of the poor, but I'm about to die. Take care of me. I'm special. I'm the Messiah. Remember Son of God, that whole deal I was talking about earlier? But I think there's more to it than that. I think Jesus is trying to tell them something here. And this is what I think he's trying to tell them. And this is where it circles back to the first story. We're going to go back to the Torah. Can I get the Deuteronomy? There. This is from Deuteronomy 15. This is in the Torah. This is the law. Verse 4. There will, however, be no one in need among you, because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy. If only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. When the Lord your God has blessed you as he promised you, you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near. By the way, this is uh, under the Torah. If you lent somebody money every seventh year, you had to forgive the debt. That's what this is referring to. The seventh year, the year of remission is near. And therefore, view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you and you will incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be in, some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. This is what Jesus was talking about. Jesus, a man educated in the Torah, is referencing the Torah. And there's an interesting thing here that happens in this verse, and it's, it's kind of too big to show you up on the screen, and I'm sorry. But at the very beginning of this passage... God is saying, there will never be any poor in the land if you keep my commandment. And at the end of it, it says, there will always be poor in the land. So always extend gratitude. 
to the poor and the needy. This is what I think is one of those times in, in the Torah that represents what the covenant really meant. Because God is making a promise that says, this is how it's going to work. There will be poor in need. And my command to you is that as soon as that poor in need appears, you will fill it. And you will continue to fill it. And as long as that command is followed, guess what? The first verse, there will be no poor among you in your land. That it will be an instantaneous and complete and turning process. And this is what God describes as the promised land. Now, I'd like to go back to that second Mark story. I think, I submit that Jesus is sitting there at dinner and a woman walks up to him and he knows that she is offering him and has offered him maybe almost everything she owns, which is an incredible gift. And other people at the dinner, it's not their property, other people at the dinner scold her for making such a gift and say, I can't believe you didn't give that to the poor. The poor. And Jesus says, I don't want to go to that. Um, Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. When he, re- when he returns their fire, so to speak, he says, for you always have the poor with you and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. I think what Jesus might be onto there is to say, hey, wait a minute. You just tried to, you just scolded a woman for an unbelievably gracious gift to, you guys remember, do you guys, the son of man has no place to lay his head? Have you seen the sandals on my feet? Have you seen the way my hair looks and the sores on my hands? Do you have any idea what's about to happen to me or what has happened to me? She just made an unbelievable sacrifice to a poor man. And I'm going to give you the Torah and God's promise. And the Torah and God's promise is whenever there's poor, you're supposed to fill that need right away. And he says to them, the poor you will always have among you. And you could help them anytime you wanted, which is almost like saying, and you could have been helping them anytime you wanted. And you're going to rebuke this woman for this, this right here? So what do these two stories have in common? And what do they have to do with work with Open Table Nashville? What do they have to do with Room in the Inn? I'll tell you what I think they do. There's two things, two, there's a phrase in this story that's used a couple of times that's deeply troubling to me because it's a phrase that I use. There's nothing wrong with using this phrase. There's nothing wrong with any of this. I want to get rid of that idea right away. And it's the poor. The homeless. There's a problem that we use labels to describe groups of people who aren't like us. We know that, right? We get that. I mean, we get on Facebook for a second and we get to talk about blacks, athletes, But in this case, the poor and the homeless is an incredibly damaging label 
Because what it conjures in our minds subconsciously, we all know it. If, I, if, if you close your eyes and I said the homeless, a lot of us are going to conjure images that kind of look the same. They're nameless. They're faceless. And we don't have any real idea what that experience is like. And that's, that's the way that it is. And I think Jesus is on to something when he says to the rich young man, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Because Jesus just walks the guy, walk by all of these poor people, he knows, and you don't even know who they are. And that's not an indictment. That's a, you, you, this is a group of people who are an other from you. You don't see yourself in them and you don't see me in them. And that is, your humanity is limited by that. Because he could have said, or maybe we can say, as we do work with the homeless community in Nashville, I'm not going to go help the homeless. I'm going to go help Beetlejuice. I'm going to go help Papa Smurf or Ben or Larry or Susan. It's the problem of a label. And I think Jesus looked at the people at that dinner and he says, hey, the poor you're always going to have with you and you can help them anytime. A poor man sat in front of you and you didn't even recognize it. A woman just made herself poor through an act of love and generosity and you scolded her. So the first thing that can happen for us in our own humanity, I think, as a church, something that's happened in fits and starts for somebody who needed it like me, is to begin to have an identity to create an identity where a label once existed. And here's the second thing. We live now in a culture that economics and property are almost the only thing that matters. And even if you sit at about the 25th percentile in economics in our culture, you are light years above someone who sits at the zero percentile. And there is almost literally no way that you can even begin to imagine, that I can even begin to imagine what that existence is like without coming alongside of it. And why is it important that I imagine what that existence is like so I can be woke so I can be a good person, so Jesus will love me. No, it's for the sake of my own humanity. Economic privilege. We talk about privilege a lot. The principle or condition of enjoying a special right or immunity. See, the problem with privilege is not as it's so much as it's an indictment on us where we have to say, oh my gosh, I'm privileged and feel guilty. The problem with privilege is it's blindness. I literally cannot see what it's like to sit in your shoes which means I literally cannot see myself in you. And if I cannot see myself in you, then I've lost something of my own humanity. Dorothy Day said, I can only love God so much as I love any person the least. And I think she was onto something there but I would take it a step further and say, I can only love myself to the extent that I love some, the person that I love the least. And I can't even begin to love someone whose shoes I can't walk in. For our church, one more example, and I, I know I need to close. 
One more example. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, Jesus simply says, blessed are the poor. And we talk about, is that the same sermon and Luke had a different interpretation, Matthew had a different one, are these different sermons, they happen in different places, the same one, I don't, I have no idea. But I think that the two relate to one another. And the way in which I think they relate to one another is that our economic privilege and our economic, that, that creates a certain blindness in us, the blindness it creates is our spiritual poverty. And the spiritual poverty is that gap between my ability to see myself in all of you and my ability to see myself in only some of you. And I think then when Jesus said, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich in Luke, I think he could mean that quite literally because he's saying blessed are the poor because good gracious, at least they have a chance at least at the bottom rung of a culture that values only money and power. They're divorced of any privilege they could possibly have and at least can begin the soul-making process. They got the best shot. And maybe then in Matthew when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he really means blessed are those of us who realize we've got an element of spiritual poverty, who've at least had the opportunity to see it. The exciting opportunity that I think that Room in the Inn and Open Table Nashville present for our church, the opportunity that they presented me in my life is not something where I feel like I'm giving back. It's not something where I feel like I've been altruistic and it's certainly not something where I feel like God wants me to and something's gonna happen to me if I don't. It in fact has been something that has helped me discover my own humanity. And sitting down with a man who's turned 72 years old in a homeless shelter and talked about when he was a kid dreaming of becoming a a professional baseball player. And seeing, that's me. That's me. One final story. What kicked all of this off for me is Those of you who know me know I'm an avid symphony goer. I have season tickets and I love to go to the symphony. And I was going to the symphony one night and I walked down toward the skirmerhorn and a man experiencing homelessness walked alongside me and he started talking to me and we were joking and I knew the inevitable, I was gonna be asked for money. And I thought I was a decent enough person that I wasn't gonna give him money, but I was gonna give money to a cause. So at least I felt okay about not giving him money. And the reason I wouldn't give him anything is I thought, what is he gonna do with it? What is he gonna buy with it? And that was the justification I gave myself for not doing something kind then. And he did ask me for money and I did say, I don't have anything. Um, But I made a mental note as I walked into Skirmerhorn to listen to Rachmaninoff that I would make a donation to the appropriate nonprofit. And I sat down and I, you know, at intermission, I went and had my glass of wine and I sat back down in my really nice season ticket seat. This is insufferable. And I got lost in the Rachmaninoff in the second half. And I got so lost, for some reason, I began to imagine a conversation between me and God. And the conversation was something like my prayers at my darkest hours when I asked God for, God, please don't let my company go bankrupt. God, please don't let me lose this job. 
God, please let my kids be okay. God, please let my child who's experiencing being bullied be okay. God, please let my church be okay. God, please, God, please, whatever. And this overwhelming sense of God looking at me and say, what are you going to do with it? And I sat there in that symphony in a very expensive suit, wearing a very expensive watch. And I'm not saying that you should feel guilty for having nice things. What I'm saying is, all of a sudden it hit me like a ton of bricks that I didn't identify with this man who wanted something at all. Because I couldn't see my common humanity. Except that, in his world and in his commodity, asking me for a couple dollars is no different than when I ask God for things. You want to see God and Jesus and yourself and another human being, wrap your head around that idea. We live, we are so fortunate, all of us, no matter where we are on the socioeconomic run, we are so fortunate that we can actually pray for things we want and have an expectation, maybe. We don't sit at a place in society where we literally, day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, rely on the benevolence of another human being. And I think it would really expand our humanity if we do. It's expanded mine. And I do believe it is the calling of Christ. To circle back to the first story, I think Jesus looks at all of us and says, you lack one thing to love your neighbor as yourself because your neighbor is yourself. Steve and Roy are two guys that are trench warriors in, uh, in this area and with people experiencing homelessness. Steve and Roy are gonna come up. Roy's gonna talk about Room in the Inn for whom he works and some of the partnership that we have the opportunities of church of doing there. Steve's gonna talk about Open Table Nashville and some of the opportunities we have to do with Open Table Nashville. I hope um, that this is something we can become involved in and certainly these guys are great resources and if any of you have any questions uh, about any of the things that maybe I do, feel free to ask, thanks. Hi, I'm Steve Lindstrom. Hello? Okay, there we go. And this is my compadre, Roy. So, Roy, why don't you take it away? Okay, yeah, listen, Justin, thanks for that message. And uh, uh, for those of you that don't know me, some of you I know, a number of you I don't know, but I've been uh, a regular attender here at uh, Grace Point for about a year and a half, going on two years. And how I found out about Grace Point was I was working for an organization called Room in the Inn, and one of the main things that we do is we partner with churches and try during the winter months of November through March to get them to agree to come down to our campus at Drexel and bring homeless guests to their facility, their church, and give them a warm, safe place to lie down at night and an evening meal, a simple breakfast, and a sack lunch to take with them the next day. And more importantly than that, as Justin mentioned, to interact with them not as homeless people, but as human beings made in the image of God, uh, human beings who have lost that image. 
One of the things that poverty, extreme poverty and homelessness will do to you is it will strip you of your dignity and you lose the fact that you're a human being made in the image of God and the inherent worth that, that you have as a result of that. And so when you come into a church where people will treat you with love and respect as their guest, just like they would anyone in your home, it goes light years in helping them regain the love and respect that they've lost. Room the Inn was started about 30 years ago by a Catholic priest named Charles Strobel. He was the priest at Holy Name Church across on Woodland Street across from what's now Nissan Stadium. And he looked out his parish window one day and he saw some sort of unseemly people hanging out in his parking lot. And so he went out to see what was going on. He found out they were hungry and homeless. And he decided, just like the old saying goes, just because you can't do everything, don't do nothing. And so he went in and did what he could. He made some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and he took them out to those people. Well, the next day, not only did they show up, they had a bigger crowd with them. There were uh, uh, more homeless people that had joined in. And so he began to marshal up some of his congregation and some of the nuns, and they began to make lunch and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for these homeless people. Then he looked out one night, and winter was coming on. And he saw them, he was about to lay down in a warm bed, and he saw them building a fire in a trash can outside in the parking lot. And he thought, you know, I can't do this. So he goes out, and he said to him, if you won't tear anything up or do anything violent, you can come into our sanctuary and lay down on the pews and sleep in a warm place tonight. And so they said, we won't bother anything. Well, that night turned into uh, a whole winter of nights. And then he began to think, if we could use our facilities as a church to help relieve the suffering of homeless people, even for a night, maybe there are other churches that would be willing to do the same thing. And so that first year they had four. Now there's 195 churches in Nashville and the surrounding Nashville area that actually come down to our campus in the winter months of November through March, pick up 12 homeless guests, take them to their facility, provide a warm, safe place for them to sleep and some food for them to eat. And so from the room in the end part of what we're giving uh, Grace Point an opportunity to do is for you to sign up and be a part of that in some way. I mean, there are different tasks that, that need to be performed. We need drivers to go pick the guests up. We need someone to help prepare and set up the, the bedding here. We need people to help prepare and serve the meals. We need people to help take back and take down the, the stuff that we uh, put up and keep the homeless people with. And we need people come and just interact with the homeless again and treat them uh, with love and respect in the dignity of the human being that they are. And I will guarantee you it will, it will have more of an impact on you. It will be a blessing to the homeless, but it will be a huge blessing to you. And so if you don't know what task you would be able to do or what you would want to do, at this stage, at least sign up. We'll give you opportunity to sign up tonight. You give us your name, we'll contact you, and we'll work with you on how you can do this. But this is a real, tangible, meaningful way that we can respond to what we just heard in Justin's message and what we can respond to as we've heard in people. Like I say, I met this guy uh, because y'all had house two winters ago during the ice storm, y'all had housed some homeless people in your church. And one of the things I do for Room and Inn is go around calling on churches. I'm a former pastor who walked away from the church. I pastored in the city for almost 20 years, but that's a story for another day. I hadn't been in a church in three years. 
And I was just going out recruiting churches, and they told me about Grace Point, and they referred me to this guy right here, Steve Lindstrom. And we had lunch, and immediately we connected, and we began to brainstorm on how can we merge what our different organizations do and merge that into the congregation here at Grace Point. And he began to tell me about Grace Point, and I'm, I shook my head. I said, no way. There is no way. There is a church in the Brentwood Franklin quarter. I've pastored in that quarter. <laughs> there is no way that there is a church that is that inclusive, that is that open, that is that diverse. And so I asked him, I said, where, where y'all worship? I'm going to come and see that. And so I did, and I've been coming ever since. So uh, I had no intention of ever connecting with the church again, but like it or not, I've connected with y'all. So if you don't like me, you can try to get rid of me, but I'm going to still keep showing up. But anyway, Steve, uh, that's a nutshell of what we're going to do with the room in the end part, but open table... Uh, adds another dimension to that. Thanks, Roy. <clears throat> so um, the overarching view of this is that there are people experiencing homelessness that need shelter and comfort in the wintertime, and one way to do that is to bring them into our churches. But that doesn't cover it all. And so we're going to be partnering with Open Table. Gonna put the, there we go. And Open Table, just a little background on their story, <clears throat> Um, they were founded in 2010 as a result of the flood. Some of you were here then. It wiped out Tent City, which was underneath the bridge. <clears throat> and when the waters receded, the city closed down Tent City to other campgrounds, and there was no place for the people that were there to go. So a, a group of uh, amazing people uh, got together and founded Open Table to go forward and address this issue straight on with the purpose of interrupting cycles of poverty, as it says up here, uh, providing education, <clears throat> and walking alongside the marginalized. And uh, doing this through healing, hope, and housing. So last year, the open table um, outreach workers had 4,300 meetings with people trying to get them into housing. They were able, by a miracle, to get 112 in. I think that speaks to the problem. It is incredibly hard to get people who are experiencing homelessness or unsheltered people into housing, both in terms of where they're at and also in terms of the status of the community where we've got 7,000 people with Section 8 and we have no apartments ready for them, zero. So and there's, there's apartments closing down. So getting 112 in is an amazing feat. And we'll be working with uh, this group of people who have changed my life. The, the uh, challenge we have is that even with what we do with, with um, Room of the Inn, there are not enough shelter beds. There are 7,000 people more or less who are homeless. So open table, our room in the inn has a certain number. The um, rescue mission has a certain number. There's always people, we're trying to jam people in. So what do we do for those who aren't able to? That's, that's, the, that's the opportunity. So what do we do? We go out to them, we go where they are at, and we meet them where they're at, and we provide them uh, hand warmers, other things to survive a night. A couple of years ago, uh, I know this piece of data, we had 82 people die in the streets of Nashville. Every one of them was not necessary. 
And in this city of the wealth we have here, any one person should die on the streets is just, well, that's a sin. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, so what we do is we go out and meet them where they're at. And uh, you can see here, this was, these pictures were taken two years ago in the blizzard we had. Uh, so there's uh, one of the open table uh, workers, uh, Lindsay Krinks, took a picture of her as we're walking down, half mile down this track looking for a camp that we knew was there that needed uh, food and um, warm clothing and, and uh, bed, beddings. Next slide, please. So uh, everybody who, we, all the winter stuff is not always out in these incredible conditions. This was last year I took this photo at, at uh, Commerce and Sixth. This is a person lying on one of those heaters that blow up. And when we went up to this person, we asked them uh, if they'd like to go into the shelter. They said no. And um, I'm good out here. But what we did do was we gave them some uh, hand warmers, some bedding, some food, and so forth, just knowing that they were going to be able to survive the night in their own unique way. Not everybody is fit for a shelter. The next thing, uh, next slide, please. Uh, this is a, a quick slide. I'll go over this real quickly. But the city uh, metro has a, a winter uh, coal response program. So from November 1st through March 31st, Room in the Inn, the Rescue Mission, and Oasis and Launchpad, which are uh, focused on youth, are open every day, every night from those months. If the temperature gets below 25, two things happen. One is we open up more beds, and second is outreach goes out to all these camps and so forth. By the way, there's 275 camps in downtown Nashville. Um, and we try to get them into shelters and food and um, warm things. If it goes 19 degrees, we open up more rooms and then we do more intensive outreach. And sometimes, like last year, the uh, Metro declares an emergency. This sounds really great. I'm going to make an editorial here that uh, I think this sucks. Uh, and the reason it does is this legislates suffering. We said that at 25 and 19, we're going to do certain things. Now, y'all live here. You know what, at 32 degrees, when it's raining and the wind's blowing, and you compare that to 19, so the fact that we're saying, oh, because it's colder, we're going to open more places up, all we're saying in the reverse of that is we're going to have less places open when it's, when it's 25 degrees. So our job is to do outreach. Next slide, please. Uh, so our goal is to find people and empower them so they know their options, what's available, and to stay warm and alive. And we do that by walking around and driving around. Next slide, please. What can we do? We can take action. There's two ways to take action. One, on November 14th, there is a training, a two-hour training, open table we'll be doing for uh, winter outreach, which is phenomenal. You will learn more about what's going on in the city and about what's going on on the streets in that two hours. Uh, and if you can't make that, we still, you still can volunteer to do this because you don't have to be trained to go out. We need people who are drivers, people to walk along, who just carry stuff. We go out and carry backpacks and stuff with us. Um, and it's always safe and um, we're always in teams. And so there's a place for anybody to fit in this. 
And to Roy's point and to Justin's point, walking alongside people experiencing homelessness will change both of your lives. And in my own experience, um, I have seen in others uh, myself, and sometimes it's not so, sometimes it's not so pretty. But uh, one thing I know is that after I get to know someone else's story, that we're all the same. We're all the same. So today, we'd like to have you search your heart and see what actions you can take in front of you or with you. You have some sign-up sheets that look like this. If you would please fill these out if you're interested, and either working with um, doing the Room of the Inn, we're going to do it every other Wednesday here, right over here, for 12 guests. And we need all the kind of things that uh, Roy talked about, and they are listed on the back of the form you have there. If you're interested in doing the winter outreach with uh, Open Table, you can sign up for either the um, the uh, training or just a volunteer, and we'll be contacting you. Roy and I will be outside to answer any questions and have further discussion, and at that point, I'll turn it back to Stan. Still, uh, Steve and Roy and Justin, how much we appreciate them.